The funny thing about wisdom is that you have to be smart enough to go out and gain some. This is my conversation with Kathleen Donnelly Israel. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Kathleen Donnelly Israel. Kathleen lived her entire life in San Diego, California. She raised five kids with her husband. And when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, she spent 17 years taking care of him until his passing. And then she went on the Camino Santiago and wrote a book about that adventure called Wisdom on the Camino. And today we're going to talk about that story and also all the kind of twists and turns that life takes us on and in fact how truth does taste funny so kathleen welcome to the show hi hirsch i'm happy to be here yeah glad to have you so let's start with this what were you expecting from your life when you were newly married and you and your husband were starting to have kids did you think about the long-term, or were you kind of a live-in-the-moment person then? I was thinking of the long-term. I got married when I was 20. My husband was 22. And I remember the night before our wedding, I very seriously thought, you know what, Kathleen? Tomorrow, your life is not your own anymore. Oh yeah. Tomorrow, your life is going to be your life with Ron. And I was just very committed to, you know, this is the rest of my life here. Yeah. And what were you doing? What was Ron doing professionally? What were what kind of things were you involved in? Ron was into electronics. I mean, even as a teenager, he worked at a TV store and fixed TVs for a living when he was 17 years old. And so he was just kind of like a hot shot. He worked for General Dynamics, and their big thing is they're always laying people off. So they did lay him off right before our first child was born. So we we got to, you know, do our first child on unemployment. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, and no insurance. So we just, you know, sort of muddled through and made it happen. After we got married, he got a, he went back to school and got his AA in electronics and somebody in his class said that they were hiring over at Western Electric so he got a job with them and that's the job that he had our whole our whole married life he you know first it was Western Electric then it was AT&T and then it was Lucent Technologies and he just always had the same job and he was a hot shot so like every time they had a layoff they got to keep 10% and they always kept him. So w- that was very fortunate when you have five kids to have a job the whole time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I also have five kids as well. And wow. uh, yeah, and I also can testify to the fact that, you know, you don't, you don't know exactly where life is going to take you. And often you just kind of hold on and uh, see what's next. And, um, right. 
and you don't, all the planning in the world doesn't really account for the strangeness of life. At what point was Frank diagnosed with Parkinson's? Ron. Oh, Ron, um, sorry. Yeah, Ron. Uh, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was like 51 years old. And that was uh, the year our youngest son was a senior in high school. And so he was going off to college the next year. I mean, he got accepted at Gonzaga University and you know, they're not cheap. He had some scholarships, but he actually had to become a great salesman in order to put himself through college because his dad had to quit his job. So yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, we obviously know something about Parkinson's, but mm-hmm. tell us what the impact was beyond that, obviously with your youngest son going to college, but how did things change? What were the things that Ron went through and that you were helping him with? He wanted to do the medical model of Parkinson's disease. And I'm kind of like a person that doesn't take medication. Oh, <laughs> and okay. so that was a little bit difficult to jive those two philosophies together. Right. I was like, let's find a cure for this thing. And, you know, I actually spent some money trying to find a cure for this thing. And he didn't want to have anything to do with any of those things. I bought a cure from this guy. I sent him 50 bucks and he sent me the, his cure from Australia. And then I bought him negative ion clothes. They said that would help and he wouldn't wear it. And he was just like wanted to do the medical model of Parkinson's disease. And I, you know, he started taking medication. His job, you had to write down what you did after you did it. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't write anymore, so he had to quit his job. And he thought he would get another job, but when he started taking those meds, he kept falling asleep, so he couldn't get another job. So there we were. I mean, he, had, he retired early, so we were like, you know, living on $1,500 a month. And I think that's what our house payment was. So yeah. it wasn't good. I started renting out rooms and stuff in our house so that we could have some food. And the gas in the electric bill, you know. So it was really intense. And I got a job, too. I got a job at the Center for the Blind driving a bus. <laughs> yeah. So I could do all those things until uh, in 2010, he was in so much pain from all the meds. I mean, that's what I say. It's from all the meds he was taking. Uh-huh. And they wanted to... They said he had stenosis of the spine, and I was just like, and they wanted to give him gabapentin, and I was just like, no, too much meds, too much meds, that's the problem here. So this guy, I was selling the negative ion clothes at the time, and I advertised him, and this doctor came over, this retired doctor, and he he saw Ron, and he wanted to see the negative ion clothes, and, and then when he saw Ron, he's like, okay, well, now I know why I'm here. And he wanted to cure Ron. And I said, well, if you want to cure Ron, you go talk to Ron, because Ron doesn't want to do anything I want to do. And so he talked Ron into going off all his meds. And, you know, um, he said he could cure him. So the next morning, oh, my gosh, he was in so much pain again. And uh, he said, I need my meds. You don't understand. I just need them. And so I called the doctor and I was like, Ron needs his meds. And the doctor was just walking up my street and he came in and 
he gave uh, Ron a coffee enema, and all of a sudden, Ron wasn't in pain anymore. Hmm. And uh, so he had me, like, juicing carrots and celery and, and green apples, and so we... And he, he had me giving Ron uh, three coffee enemas a day. And so that was the cure, you know, that he thought would help. And he gave, he came every day. He thought he was going to cure Ron. He came every day, gave him a vitamin B shot and doing all this other stuff that he did. He had Ron taking charcoal and <laughs> made yeah, some tea out of him. become, a, you know, very popular now on all sorts of levels. I mean, so, well, it did, it addressed the pain, the, the, right. You know, so, and, and so, but there was, but what, what happened? Uh, did it not have a long-term kind of curative effect of any kind or? So Ron was not in pain anymore, but he was paralyzed because he needed the meds to move. And so we went like that for six months and then the doctor gave up. He thought that, if he got all the meds out of Ron, Ron would be able to move, but he found that he didn't wasn't able to move. And so the doctor gave up and <laughs> never came back. He told me he was going on vacation and he never came back. He never came and, back from vacation. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so He might have overdosed on coffee enemas. It's, <laughs> it's possible. You never you never know. The, well, they say doctor heal thyself. And so, you know, Sometimes they go too far, but it, but he tried. Uh, yeah, he tried, and, and Ron was happy. Ron didn't right. care if he was paralyzed. Ron just didn't want to be in pain. So he was just yeah. sitting there watching cowboy movies and NCIS, and he was yeah. having a good old time having me wait on him hand and foot. <laughs> yeah. He was just fine, and he did not want to, like he could have taken the meds and been able to move. But he didn't want to because well, he didn't a want to be in choice pain. to have to make, you know, between having mobility and being in pain and and just not having the pain, but not really being able to to do anything. It is a tough, you know, situation. It's also tough when you have differing opinions in a marriage about mm -hmm. about medicine and what what's worth trying and what's what's not. And you don't know, you know, you don't know you you. But I get the reluctance to over-medicate on traditional medication. I mean, that's just across the board, you know, whether it's mental health or it's physical wellness, or, you know, the, I talk about this a lot on the show and, and it's just, I just think that, you know, the medical, the industry in some ways is at odds with our getting better, you know? Right. So that's just a reality. Yeah, and you know, if you believe in the medical model, then you have to do it. You know, you that's it. And so he did and so that was what we had to do. And you know, it was we all have what we believe in. One thing that really helped me out was I mean, if we're going to do till death do us part, then I would prefer to be the well one taking care of him than to be mm -hmm. the sick one being cared for. Right. And so that just, you know, that thinking just helped me out so that I wasn't just so angry. I was really angry. Um, yeah. And trying to figure out how I could get out of Dodge and stuff like that. But 
when he was totally disabled for those last few years, you know, I didn't have, I, I, I didn't even think of leaving then. I mean, I was thinking of leaving when he was still able to care for himself. Right. And I was like, oh, geez, get me out of here. And, but when he had, he couldn't take care of himself anymore, then I was like, okay, well, this is it then. And what were the kids up to at this point? Because most of them had were all, were either in or out of college. Yeah, they are grown up. Um, yeah, they were all grown up and with their family and with children. And that's what, when the doctor gave up, they were saying, well, you can't leave him paralyzed. You got to do something. And Ron was just happy. But there was this thing called a deep brain stimulator, and you didn't have to take the meds. You could just have that working for you. So we got that surgery. And the first, they do one side and then they do the other side. And the first side worked, actually. He, he was able to move. And and then the second side was a failed surgery. And he couldn't walk or talk anymore after that. So we got to just do the rest of his life, you know, in the chair and like I say, he was a happy man. He was not sad about it at all. He accepted it, and he, you know, he was happy. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's interesting. I mean, in one sense, you know, you're you're in this position of, of being the caregiver and not, you know, and preferring to at least be not be helpless and not be needing someone to to do all of those things he was in a situation of probably his preferred his preferred option under the circumstances i would rather sit right. in the chair and watch ncis and, <laughs> and, and, and let kathleen you know do the heavy lifting yep. and then if i were left trying to pull all this stuff together and and manage and manage everything but yeah. so you say the kids had their, you know, had their own their own lives and things. Were they were any mm -hmm. of them still living in in San Diego? Just or? my older daughter, and she has a pretty hot, you know, sixty hour a week job and two kids and a husband. And then everybody else lived in Texas. They all moved to Texas. Why? It's very Why expensive. Texas? Yeah, <laughs> everybody had their reason. I guess my son wanted to be a paramedic and he really liked the rookie program in Austin. So he went and became a rookie EMT in Austin. And Cecilia wanted to do her master's degree in UT Austin. Everybody, you know, she'd have to get loans and stuff. And UT Austin liked her work and they said, come here, we'll pay you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So okay. she ended up in Austin and and then our other daughter, her husband was a teacher here and they changed the rules for teaching. And so she found him a job in T Dallas where they would pay him to be a rookie teacher and he could get his credential. So everybody had their reason. Yeah. My other son went to Dallas also because he's a salesman and it's a great place. You know, it's a large market. Yes. Well, Austin, I can only speak for Austin having having been there not too long ago that it's a a very interesting and fun city to live in. Yeah, you know, keep Austin ev weird. <laughs> every exactly. Everywhere is exp it seems like everywhere is expensive if you're going after if you're pursuing work and you're pursuing industry, you're going to 
you know, you're going to come across places that are that have a high cost of living. Um, I know they went to Texas because San Diego's expensive, but they went to the two most expensive places in places Texas. In, in Texas, <laughs> and so yeah. and so at that point, this was now what this was the. Uh, this was what 2012 2011 yeah he yeah. he he became totally disabled in 2011 and he died in 2018 so yeah you know that was yeah so that was i would imagine very constricting for you in that in that period you know he was restricted you know yeah. uh, mm -hmm. but you were you were probably you know having to be constricted and then and then when, when Ron passed, what prompted this trip to the Camino? Well, during, when, we, when he was okay, I, I was thinking about what we could do in our old age that Ron would like. And he was an athlete. He was a triathlete. And I thought, well, we could ride our bicycles across France. It would be fun, you know. And then when he got sick, I'm like, okay, well, we're not going to do that. So around 2013, when I was really taking care of Ron heavy duty, my girlfriend went on the Camino. And even though she had blisters and walked with bloody feet, and I just noticed that she was doing something very special for herself. And I thought, you know what? When Ron's done with his disease, I'm going to do the Camino. And so... He died in August of 2018. My mother died in December of 2018. Oh. I had so much work to do for, you know, like the grave, the funeral, the insurance, the bank, all this stuff that I had to do. Thank God we had a trust, you know. Around about January, I was like all done with that stuff. And I thought... Oh, well, I think I'll just start figuring out how to do the Camino. And there was a lecture at the library, and this lady came and told everybody how to pack light for the Camino. And so I, I learned a lot from that lady, and I watched YouTubes, and I read books, and, you know, I got ready. And yeah. I had been walking with my friend five miles, three days a week down at the bay in San Diego. And and that didn't even make me sweat. So I figured, well, I can walk five miles before lunch and five miles after lunch and I can do this. And so also I was actually volunteering at a horse ranch. There's a horse ranch out in Lakeside close to my house and I was, you know, picking up horse pucky and putting it in a wheelbarrow and so I had I had a really good core strength because from mm. you know having that wheelbarrow all the time. So anyway, I was strong and I my sister-in-law had me walking up mountains. She called me up and said, "Kathleen, you need to walk up mountains." So she went and found all the mountains in San Diego and started walking me up mountains and Put, I had to get uh, four packs before, before I found the right one. It's really good. You, REI, you can take things back. So oh, yeah. the fourth one was a charm. And so I started hiking up mountains with my pack full. And so I just got ready. And I, I knew I wanted to go by myself. And I actually asked people if they'd like to go with me. And nobody 
could go. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't afraid to go by myself because a lot of people do. And yeah. really, nobody walks the same amount of fast. So either you're going to have yeah. to walk slow with somebody or they're going to have to walk slow for you. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, how does so so tell us what 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 it's like. So you sound like you were really prepared, as prepared as someone might be. Yeah. Uh, are there some challenges associated with the Camino that are good to know about in advance when when people are considering it? Well, I you know, you need to find lightweight clothing and I didn't want to wear sunscreen all the time, so I got long sleeve clothes so that, you know, and so I, I went online and I put in lightweight sunscreen shirt and then put my size and then I found the things, you know, things that I could wear. Mm. And so you really need to keep things light. Also, the albergues, there there are places to stay in on the Camino. Actually, the Camino is, even though it's very cheap to stay in the albergues, it's a large part of the um, economy in northern Spain is the Camino. Mm-hmm. And and you stay in these places, they're like 5 to 12 euros a night. And I got a book. And in the book, it was so cool. They had the amenities in each town. And so if I needed a pharmacy, I would look which town had a pharmacy in it. And I could target that place and... And then I'd look and see, like you could tell how the altitude, they had an altitude map in there too. So I could see, okay, well, today I want to walk 12 kilometers because there's a mountain. And so I might be tired. So I I don't want to walk 15 because, you know, so you can think about stuff like that too. And so just find an albergue that's, you know, 12 kilometers away and then yeah. call them the day before and say, you know, I need a I need a bed for tomorrow night or quiero una cama para esta noche, <laughs> you know. I was going to ask how you're Spanish. How yeah, you're I Spanish live in San Diego right next to Mexico, so right. I mean, I know a little bit of Spanish. Right. And so that was I, I don't speak Spanish very well, but I can get by. If people don't speak English, it's a lot easier. If people speak English, it's hard for me to think of the words, but my my brain can actually think of the words if, if I know nobody else. You know, it's just... Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a necessity. Necessity yeah. drives you. So how long, does it, how long did it take uh, to walk? Well, I was on the Camino 66 days. But I took every Sunday off. I had been walking and I got to Sunday and I would just get in because I was really tired and I would fall on my bed and fall asleep. And then I'd get up and like, oh, it's their mass. And invariably I'd be missing mass and I'd be like, right. oh, man. And I thought, I'm on this holy pilgrimage and I'm not even going to church on Sunday. <laughs> so so I decided to just take Sunday off. So I'd um, so what I had to do is go to a hotel because you can only stay one night at the Albergues. So I'd get a hotel and stay there Saturday night and Sunday night, and I'd start on Monday. So that took me a little longer every week. I took a day off, and then I took Holy Week off. It was, oh, my gosh, those Spanish people, they really know how to do Holy Week. And it's just so dramatic and 
what wonderful oh my gosh so i <laughs> i was in this town and it was holy week and they were going to ha have a I don't know what they were going to have. They were going to have some sort of procession. And I thought, oh, I'll go down to the church and check this out. Well, I went down there and there were all these people with cone heads on, these purple satin cone heads with covering over their face and then purple satin clothing. And they had drums and they were going, you know, and that was amazing. And so I got in the procession behind them and we walked through the whole town. I mean, the procession was so huge that it, I mean, the, I guess the streets are just narrow there, right? But uh -huh. we were like, you know, filling the whole street with this procession. Yeah. And then we got back to the church oh, and... That's my, my dog, Toby. Toby. <laughs> yeah. My wife is traveling now, as a matter of fact, and so he's feeling clingy. Aww. So. <laughs> Aww. But uh, yeah, so, so I'm sorry. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So got back to the church, and I was just kind of taking pictures. It was kind of interesting. And this man came up to me, and he pointed down the street, like he wanted me to be taking pictures down the street. So I was up on the hill by the church. Down at the bottom of the street, you could hear the drums coming from two directions. And then on the right-hand side, you see this statue of Mary with the black clothes and the gold and the white lace around. And she's Our Lady of Sorrows. And you could see her face was really sad looking. She's on, you know, on a litter, the statue of Mary, really big. And then from the other direction came this statue of Jesus carrying the cross. Wow. And oh my gosh, they, when Mary and Jesus saw each other, all the drums stopped. It's like so dramatic. Oh, wow. And then they started up again and then they stopped. So it was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I never seen anything like that. Yeah. And so anyway, it was, it was amazing. I took a video of it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. So that was, that was, I think that was Monday of Holy Week. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the next town and I stayed there the rest of Holy Week. And I stayed in a hotel. And so I just became one of the church ladies going to the church. And by the, by the time Easter got there, people were recognizing me and nodding to me. And, yeah. But they had processions, you know, every night. And anyway, it was amazing. And did you have a plan at this time to write a book? about this not you know what i didn't want to write about this what i wanted to write about see while i had kind of a rough childhood my dad was like an alcoholic rageaholic child molester oh and gosh, so yeah. i mean i had pain and so i while ron was sick i in the evening i had to be there right and in the evening i would just go in and i'd study with all these enlightened thought leaders about how to heal from my pain. And I really believed that God was sending me all these teachers because I would I would see one and I would buy their program, you know, like a $69, something like that. And I would do the work. And then after a while, it wasn't 
helping me anymore. And so God would send me another one and I do their work. So over the, all those years, I was just cleaning my soul, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. from all my pain. And I was in my 60s at the time. And so what I wanted to write about was all the things that I learned from those teachers that I had sort of synthesized all this information into things that I really believe myself. Right. And so that's what I wanted to write the book about. And then I thought, oh, I was reluctant to be teachy. So I thought, well, I told people on the Camino all those things. So I wrote my book about walking the Camino and telling people those things. Mm-hmm. So that's when I, you know, did my first this, you know, you do a outline. The outline was about my teachings. And right. then I just sort of filled in the people that I told those things to. And that's how I formulated it. The book. Yeah. So and when did you when were you ready to release the book? You know, I yeah, I, ago, I start right? I started writing it in August. And it was actually done by November. But I wanted to, my friends were telling me, oh, we love your pictures. Because I had showed people on Facebook my pictures. And they said, you have to put the pictures in, you know. And I was just like, yeah, and the book will be $50. Nobody will buy it. And and so what I did was I made a website. And I made portfolios and galleries with the pictures I put chapter one and all the pictures from chapter one, chapter two, you know, like that. And so that took me nine months to make that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just took me, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, it just was, but anyway, by July, I had that all done. And I already had my plan to walk in Portugal in August. I left in August. So it was like, the last minute I finally published the book and I had that all together in August and then I left to go to Portugal to walk the Portuguese Camino. What so, year was that? The, the It was last year, 2021. Did the pandemic affect these plans, uh, this process? Yeah, you know, I when the shots for, you know, COVID shots came out, mm-hmm. I got them because I knew I wanted to travel. I wanted, yeah. you know, and I, I figured they wouldn't let me if I didn't get them. So I, I got the, and so I just kept getting the boosters. And I, so also I I take this stuff, it's called MMS, and it, it actually steals an electron from the, anaerobic cells and COVID is anaerobic. So I take that so I don't get it. And Mm. I took it with me. So I was, I felt safe taking the, the MMS with me. I Mm. I felt like I wasn't going to get COVID. Yeah. Plus I had all those shots too. Yeah. But it was, you know, you had to do the testing and I, it was going to take me so long to get there that I had to have two tests to cover the whole trip. Oh yeah. So I did that and it was pretty exciting because, you know, I got to the airport and my mail wouldn't come in, so I couldn't show him my test. Mm-hmm. So that that's in the next book, the the 
the fiasco. The fiasco, the travel fiasco. Yeah, by the time I got on the plane, I couldn't believe I could actually go because there was so many, you can't go, you can't go. You're going to have to buy a new ticket, you know. (laughs) What's your take on Portugal? A lot of my friends have been moving just randomly, not knowing one another, have just moved to Portugal, like four friends. Um, Yeah, it's really cheap to live in Portugal. I mean, it start you start to wonder why am I not living in Portugal, and I have never been to Portugal, but it, but you know, I'm kind of, I'm open to it. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think they're a very high society over there in Portugal, and it's really inexpensive to live there. I they really did COVID well. They they I mean, right outside my hostel, I stayed in Lisbon for three weeks because it was too hot to walk. And right outside my hotel, there was this bungalow and you could go in and get your COVID test for free, you know? Wow. So, it, I mean, I, I just thought they had it, they had it down, you know? And, and then yeah. I, you go into, I mean, they had a food court and you couldn't even get in there unless you had your shot record. And so I, I thought they handled it very well and made it easy for people to, yeah, and it was difficult doing the Camino there because a lot of the albergues were closed. So like there were some places where it was like 35 miles between albergues and I can't walk 35 miles in a day. No. So I would walk as far as I could, take the bus back to the previous albergue and then in the morning take the bus back to the there and start walking. So it, it, was a, it wasn't as fun as it was on the on the Portuguese one before COVID, but it was actually doable. I did it, so. Yeah, yeah. And so, so now you had tackled Spain, Portugal, and what's, what's next? What's, what are you doing now or preparing now? Well, right now, I really wanna finish this book about Portugal. And then I want to go on the Camino del Norte, and that's actually on the northern coast of Spain. So, so anyway, that's where I want to do next. I was going to do it in April, but you know what? I didn't. I haven't finished the book, so I'm thinking maybe I need to wait till the next year, and then I can, I can have my 75th birthday on the on the Camino. Oh, that would be cool. And and so, yeah. what's going on now in the day to day? You know, I, I'm curious, I guess, because I because I also mm-hmm. have five kids, although they're from two marriages. So three of them are grown and two of them are, you know, high school and, and grammar school still. Wow. So, but I'm curious about, you know, what what happens. As, so they grow up, they have their own lives. You're going through all this stuff. And what <laughs> what's the relationship like with them? with them now if they're mostly in texas you know right you know it's it's amazing they have of course rebelled against everything i believe in <laughs> so i get to you know i get to interact with them but i i believe that well i for me i'm trying to just raise my vibration all the time that's my big goal right now that was one of the things that i learned from all those thought leaders is like if you think of negative stuff, you're going to bring in negative stuff. Right. What you think about, you yeah. bring about. So I'm just trying to have a good thought all the time. I mean, that's my goal. 
all the mm-hmm. time and it's it's been a it's been it's been a road but I'm I'm getting good at it and That's, uh, it sounds like it <laughs> yeah and so I mean every time something goes wrong I'm like oh where was I thinking some stinking thinking you know how am I how am I drawing this into my life here you know and so well, I, you know, and it it does work both ways. I really do believe in that stuff too. You know, I I have also been told. You know, I was saying, you know, I'm doing all these different kinds of things, and my kids don't want to do all of the same all of the same things. And sometimes you think, as a parent, oh, this might be helpful. You should try this. You know, you say to an adult child, and they'll be like, nah, it's not for me, not for me. And then someone that I was working with said, well, you know what influences your life positively is going to influence them. So you can't say to them, do this or do that, but you know, it will, it will spill over into their lives in a positive way. If you're bringing, attracting positive things to yourself and you're, you're, you know, it may not be a literal lesson that they get, but it'll, it'll, trickled to to them into the into their lives which i which i hope is the case i hope that yeah they you know what they're proud of me when i started on the yeah they when they when they started on the camino nobody gave me any flack or you shouldn't do this or anything they were all happy for me and then my daughter carla started this whatsapp for me called it mom's walkabout check-in so i you know, I told all my Facebook friends all the fun stuff, and then I told my kids all the gory details, like my illnesses and stuff like that. And and so, oh, they they're very supportive. I am supportive of them too. You know, when I mean, we actually sent them through high school to Catholic school. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we spent all our money on their education. And none of them go to the Catholic Church anymore. And yeah, it's zero. And so I thought that maybe the reason why I love my church so much is because when I was a child, my home was not a safe place, but the church was a safe place. And so I never went away from the church. I always loved it, you know, and I thought, well, they don't have that. I didn't abuse them, and so they don't have that. And so I I kind of thought, well, I was glad that they didn't feel like they needed it. You know what I mean? Or right. maybe, I mean, it's not that I feel like I need it, but I just love it. I really love my church. Well, you you take solace in it, and, and you mm-hmm. get strength from it. And, 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 and in a way, I think you're probably right by providing some of the things that it provided for you your children don't feel that same need to escape they feel the rebellion yeah uh, and self-determination is important to them. i mean they were raised by a woman with post-traumatic stress disorder that was hard right yeah, true yeah so true. no wonder they rebelled and well yeah there's some there's also this notion of epigenetic imprinting where things that have happened to your Edit, your your predecessors and your and your ancestors are imprinted on the the family gene, you know, and I'm sure that that's 
that's true. It's not just secondhand trauma, like from the things that you say or do. It's just now it's affecting everybody the same way the good stuff does, I guess. Yeah, you know, one of my teachers was talking about that, and he said, you're healing yourself, and they will get healed from right. your, your healing yourself. So that made me feel good. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it should. So mm-hmm. so leave our audience here with with some takeaways about about life and and how to live it. You know, having learned, having having gone through something you didn't choose to go through and then making decisions amidst that to do to do some more adventurous stuff and following through on it, writing a book about it, planning more. What's your takeaway on life in this moment, in a chaotic moment, a kind of a crazy world, a challenging world? What's your take on that? Okay, so actually, I say that I did choose this. Um, I think uh, before I came in to be a person, I was a, uh, a, I was a low vibrational spirit out in the universe with God. Okay. And I decided that I wanted to raise my vibration. And I heard that if you go into the earth as a human, you can raise your vibration because you can do unconditional love. And um, so uh, even though I knew I was going to have a really crappy life because I was a low vibrational spirit coming in, I mean, I was attracting terrible stuff before I was born. I mean, my dad accused my mom of, you know, getting me with somebody else. Really, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, if you knew my mom. But anyway, um, so um, I lived my life and it was horrible. And I I just told my horrible story every time I got a chance. And I didn't realize that the more you say your sad story, the worse it gets. And so there I was making my life worse all the time. And... um, and anyway, God um, led me to all these enlightened thought leaders. And one of the things I learned was Ho'oponopono. And it's a Hawaiian healing technique for the family. And when I learned that, I thought, yeah, everything's going to change now. So what it is, is uh, it's like this prayer or incantation, whatever. And it's like, I love you. Um, You say, I love you, I love God, God loves me, God loves the other person, the other person loves God. If you can say, I love them, you can say it, but if you can't, you don't have to. Um, I love you, I'm sorry. And it's not, I'm sorry I did something, but I'm sorry the situation exists between me and that other person. Mm -hmm. And then it's, please forgive me. And it's not forgive me because I did something wrong, but forgive me for what's going on in me that caused me to attract this. So I have this low vibration in me attracting in this crap from this person. And uh, so please forgive me for what's going on in me that caused me to attract this. And then I added in something special for me, and it was I forgive me. Uh, And then I forgive it up. And then I felt this giant pain come out of my heart and go up to God. It was amazing. And, uh, And then you say, Thank you for showing me this so I could heal. Because if I didn't see this pain inside of me, I couldn't heal from it. Mm-hmm. And so thank you, God, for showing me this so I could heal. It's like a washing me. It, I just felt it washed me. 
And then the big I love you again. I love God. God loves me. God loves the other person. All the I love yous you can think of. So um, through doing that, it it's like magic. You can loose your binds with the people in your life that are uh, just like there to ruin your life. So it, you're, we're kind of bound to people, especially if we're married to them, but, you know, related to them or whatever, friends. But um, so it, it looses that bind so um, you can be free. And uh, anyway, that's what happened. And so um, I actually had to do it for years because I had so much pain in me from my life. But the thing is about unconditional love is you can't even do unconditional love unless you have adversity because it's easy to love people that are nice to you. So right. if you have adversity in your life and then you love on top of that, that's where you're going to raise your vibration. So thank you, God. I raised my vibration. And um, yeah, that's my plan to just keep raising my vibration as I live here on this earth. I think you make a great point because it, it seems to me that true love is born of adversity in, in some way. It's tested, it's challenged, or there's something to overcome. And if it overcomes that, then it's true. It's not the Disney movie True Love where it's the love at first sight and, the, and the, he kisses the sleeping beauty and she awakens. You know, there's still adversity that follows right that. it it's the it's the um i decided to love you love you know yeah. love is a decision love right that's what it is yeah thanks so much for tuning into truth tastes funny if you enjoyed the experience please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends